Come with me, if you will, to a tiny, quiet New England village nestling among the picturesquely rugged hills of New Hampshire. This little hamlet has for over a century been known as Gilmanton Academy, so called in honor of an institution of learning of that name, founded there by a few sturdy, self-denying, and God-fearing men over a hundred years ago, who, could they now leave their silent resting places in the churchyard nearby and again wander for an hour through these quiet streets, would, with the exception of new faces, see little change. Here in the year 1861, I, Herman W. Mudgett, the author of these pages, was born. That the first years of my life were different from those of any other ordinary country-bred boy, I have no reason to think. That I was well-trained by loving and religious parents, I know, and any deviations in my afterlife from the straight and narrow way of rectitude are not attributable to the want of a tender mother's prayer or a father's control, emphasized, when necessary, by the liberal use of the rod wielded by no sparing hand. On my fifth birthday, I was given my first suit of boys' clothing, and soon after was sent to the village schoolhouse where the school was kept. I had daily to pass the office of one village doctor, the door of which was seldom, if ever, barred. Partly from it being associated in my mind as the source of all the nauseous mixtures that had been my childish terror, for this was before the day of children's medicines, and partly because of vague rumors I had heard regarding its contents, this place was one of peculiar abhorrence to me, and this becoming known to two of my older schoolmates, they one day bore me struggling and shrieking beyond its awful portals. Nor did they desist until I had been brought face to face with one of its grinning skeletons, which, with arms outstretched, seemed ready in its turn to seize me. It was a wicked and dangerous thing to do to a child of tender years and health, but it proved an heroic method of treatment, destined ultimately to cure me of my fears and to inculcate in me, first, a strong feeling of curiosity, and later, a desire to learn, which resulted years afterwards in my adopting medicine as a profession. When I was about eight years old, an unusual occurrence took place in our village, the arrival of an itinerant photographer. He was a man apparently suffering from some slight lameness, and gladly accepted my offer to act as his errand boy and in payment for my services, he was to execute for me a likeness of myself. One morning, upon going to his office, I found the door still locked. It was immediately opened, however, by the artist, sufficiently for him to hand me a small wooden block broken into pieces. He instructed me to take them to our village wagon maker and have him make a new one, which I was to return to him. I did this, and upon entering the office again, I found the artist partially clothed and sitting near the door, which he at once locked. He then proceeded to remove the greater portion of one of his legs, and not having known until then what was the cause of his lameness, in fact, not ever having seen or even known that such a thing as artificial limbs existed, my consternation can be better imagined than described. Had he next proceeded to remove his head in the same mysterious way, I should not have been further surprised. 
he must have noticed my discomfiture, for as soon as his mending process had sufficiently progressed, he quickly placed me in a dim light, and, standing upon his whole leg, and meantime waving the other at me, he took my picture, which in a few days he gave to me. I kept it for many years, and the thin, terror-stricken face of that barefooted, homespun-clad boy I can yet see. In those days in our quiet village, so remote from the outside world that even a locomotive whistle could scarcely be heard, daily newspapers were rare and almost unknown, our usual source of information being the weekly papers and a few periodicals. And in one of these I saw a glowing offer, emphasized by a fine illustration of a gold watch and chain, a few of which would be sold at a comparatively trifling sum. Surely this was for me the one opportunity of my life, and although my entire wealth at that time consisted mostly of pennies and other small coins, almost every one having for me its own peculiar history, all of which I converted into more transferable shape by exchanging them with our shoemaker, who was also my confidant in the matter, was hardly more than sufficient to buy the watch. I was far more concerned lest, before my order should reach the distant city, all would be sold, than troubled over the depleted condition of my purse. Then came anxious days of waiting, and later the arrival of the watch, and after going alone to my room to wind it and deciding which pocket was most suitable for its reception, and still later going to the several stores and some houses, bargaining beforehand with a little friend that, in consideration of his accompanying me and at each place asking in an unconcerned manner what time it was, that he should wear it the greater part of the day, although I was to be present that no harm befell my treasure. But before it came time for him to wear it, the wheels had ceased to turn, the gold had lost its luster, and the whole affair had turned into an occasion of ridicule for my companions and of self-reproach to myself. My first falsehood and my first imprisonment occurred synchronously and were occasioned as follows. One morning, as I was driving our small herd of cows, which had a few days previously been increased by the addition of several others belonging to a neighbor, to their usual feeding ground, outside of the limits of the village, an inquisitive neighbor met me and asked, "'Whose be they?' I replied very proudly, "'Ours.' "'What, all of them?' "'Yes, all, every one, and that best one is mine, my own.' An hour later, upon returning to my home, I found father waiting to receive me. He demanded why I had told Richard the lie about the cows, but before I could answer him, my mind was most effectually taken up by the production of an implement, to which I was no stranger, and by its vigorous use. After this I was consigned to an upper room and strictly enjoined to speak to no one, and for the ensuing day I should have no food. My absence was soon noticed by my playmates, and the cause ascertained, and not long after, upon looking out of the window, I saw my little friend perched upon the fence nearby, looking almost as disconsolate as I. And later in the day, after sundry pantomime communications, he came with a liberal supply of food, which, with the aid of the ever-present ball of cord, which you can find in almost every boy's pocket, I was soon enjoying. Accompanying the food was a note written in his scrawly hand encouraging me to never mind, 
and that upon the following Saturday we would go down and let Richard's cows into his cornfield. But this was not done, for late at night, when the shadows in my room had assumed strange and fearful shapes, my mother came and, taking me into her own room, knelt down and earnestly pled with me and for me. And it was many days before I forgot that lesson. This little note, however, with two others, form a unique collection. The second was a joint production of my friend and myself, addressed to an unpopular school teacher one vacation, upon hearing that some slight financial calamity had overtaken him. This was done with the belief that a new teacher was to take his place during the coming year, but in this we were mistaken. I had abundant evidence during the first day of the following term that he had received our letter when he changed my seat from one I had long occupied, and which was very favorably located for looking into the street, to the opposite side of the room. My seatmate was a very disagreeable and unpopular girl. The third note was also a joint production, written upon brown paper and tacked upon the barn door of a village farmer, who had, as we thought, misused us. It was not a lengthy note, the words being, Who will pull your weeds next year? This note was occasioned by the farmer engaging us for a stipulated price to rid a field of a large weed that is common there, and a great hindrance to the healthy growth of other products. The weeds were tall and strong, and the pittance we were to receive was ridiculously small for the amount of work. But when we had finished and held out our tiny, blistered hands for our pay, it was not forthcoming. We went again and again for it, and being convinced it was useless to go more, we returned quietly with two large baskets, to where we had piled the weeds, to be dried preparatory to their being burned. And very soon thereafter the seeds from all that we had pulled were sown broadcast over the field again. It is perhaps a small matter to speak of here, but it so well illustrates the principle that many times in my afterlife influenced me to make my conscience become blind, that I thought well to write of it. End of section two.